There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. What could go right in a world where we are so focused on what could go wrong? I'm Zachary Carabell. So we are talking today with Christopher Schroeder. I've known Chris for a bunch of years. He is uh, a lovely, interesting, compelling man. He's an entrepreneur, an advisor, an investor in internet and interactive technologies, social communications. He's been doing this for quite a long time. And over the past eight to 10 years, he's gotten more and more involved in helping entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs in the Middle East. He's the author of Startups in the Arab World, a book called Startup Rising, The Entrepreneurial Revolution, Remaking the Middle East, which uh, Mark Andreessen did, a, I think, a pretty compelling forward to. Chris uh, was, before that, the CEO and publisher of Washington Post and Newsweek Interactive. He's the co-founder of the Silicon Valley venture capital backed startup, HealthCentral.com, which was sold in 2012. He's invested in a a wide variety of companies, including Vox Media and Skift, which are perhaps more familiar. He serves as uh, one of the board of advisors of the American University of Cairo School of Business and the American University School of International Science, and he's on the board of directors of the American University in Beirut, the German Marshall Fund, and the American Council on Germany. Uh, he also is on the investment committee of the WAMDA Fund, which is one of the largest venture capital funds in the Middle East. He's written widely and speaks on these issues, uh, and I think he is perhaps the most insightful individual who brings both a deep knowledge of the internet and entrepreneurship in the Western world and in the Middle East and throughout the world. He advises uh, startups and, and early stage businesses throughout Latin America throughout Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. So he is an unusual soul, and I think we will have an unusual and compelling conversation. So, Chris. Yeah. You have, unlike almost anyone I know, developed a recent but intense passion for entrepreneurship in a part of the world that most Americans, probably most Europeans, probably most people in general do not typically associate with entrepreneurship, namely the greater Middle East. And you've been able to open a window, an aperture into an aspect of what's going on in that culture that is unique. What was your pathway into 
this part of your professional life? So I have uh, been in the internet now for almost 15 years. I've been an entrepreneur. I ran the online businesses for the Washington Post and Newsweek, and I've been an entrepreneur uh, and ran a company I helped co-found called HealthCentral.com, which was a platform to connect people who are going through health and wellness experiences and a, and a media company that did well. Uh, everything that I've done in my life has been very global and international. And in all the tech companies that I've run, I've outsourced technology uh, to multiple markets across the world. So I knew what was being unleashed bottom-up around the world as clearly and, and more directly universal access to technology was starting to be everywhere. And what I couldn't get through in my mind was that this might be happening in the Middle East because I had one narrative, like so many Americans have one narrative about what's going on there, which is you know conflict and difficulty and tough neighborhood and beyond. Uh, about 10 years ago, a very good friend of mine uh, from the Arab world began talking about what technology was unleashing there as well. Completely familiar to me had we been talking about Southeast Asia or Latin America or Eastern Europe or anywhere. And I still couldn't quite believe what he was saying was in any way large or important. And in 2010, he and another guy put together what was the first really large gathering of startups among the Arab world. And they invited me to come to speak. And in many respects, my life was before that event and after that event. Because I, again, have been very exposed to technology in a global lens. Uh, but to see thousands, literally thousands of young Arabs doing all the things everyone else was doing at the same time hit me with a sensation of, of great excitement and at the same time embarrassment. Because it was clearly my bias and my bias alone that was keeping me from understanding that that which is happening everywhere, of course, is happening where people have access to technology in the Middle East or anywhere else. And it began a journey for me to really understand not only what was happening there, but its ramifications in rising emerging markets everywhere. So over the past six, seven years, is there any country in the Middle East that hasn't experienced this sort of 20-something, 30-something entrepreneur, entrepreneur, tech passion that you've been keyed into? Everywhere where people have access to software or technology, and by this way, this could be as basic as, as mobile technology, and it certainly is profoundly now with smartphone technology, which, as you know, is effectively a supercomputer, right? Every smart device out there has more computing power in that one device than all of NASA had uh, to put a man on the moon in 1969. Anywhere this is, there is innovation and there is creativity. I think the distinction country by country, and it's important to remember that the Middle East is not one thing, you know, in the same way Africa is not one thing. The distinction is not what young, talented people do when they have access to the capability. It is how much is the environment embracing and allowing them to thrive. And in that area, I have seen spectacular, heartbreaking now, entrepreneurs in places like Syria and Iraq. But of course, the circumstances there make it very difficult for them to do much more than sort of basic problem solving as best that they possibly can when they can. But if you go to Jordan, if you go to Egypt, if you go certainly to the UAE, which has really become a hub of this innovation, if you go to Saudi Arabia, if you go North Africa or anywhere, you're going to see amazing innovation and amazing problem solving because people now have the tools in their hands to do so. So let's get down in the weeds a little bit, right? So Egypt, the epicenter of optimism about the 2011 Arab Spring, young people in the streets, in the square getting rid of uh, a, a dictator by another name and Mubarak. And then, you know, most of us know the story, those who don't, followed by elections, the triumph of the Muslim Brotherhood in the elections in, in Morsi, and then the swift uh, overthrow of Morsi 
by the deep military state and General Sisi, who is now the head of Egypt and was recently in Washington meeting with Donald Trump. Yeah. So what happens to those optimistic, we're going to create a new world with connectivity? Has that faded? Is it, is it looking for different channels? So one macro observation, then specific to your question, I think uh, the, it is such a, a misconception among Westerners that somehow or other entrepreneurship is not everywhere in the world because entrepreneurship at its essence is a definition of people have to work around challenges to build something that was not there before or have necessity to help create a life and an economic being for themselves. And in this spirit, you can go anywhere in the world, and, and goodness knows you can go into the Arab world for thousands of years and see generations of entrepreneurs in an entrepreneurial spirit that was very powerful. What's different that we're talking about now is how technology has unleashed a new generation to build enterprises which are larger and to make impact which is larger. Since Egypt is such a significant market in size and economy, even with its challenges, you know, near 90 million people and one of the largest economies in the region, uh, there are entrepreneurs who are continuing to build remarkable companies and doing great things, uh, and their spirit is terrific. In fact, last December in Cairo, Egypt, um, 5,000 young people gathered for what is one of the most popular startup gatherings in the Arab world called Rise Up. And they, this is their fourth, I think, or fifth year in a row of literally thousands of young people from around Egypt and elsewhere in the Middle East, but mostly Egypt, come to exchange ideas, to brainstorm, and to plot, and to do remarkable things. Y Combinator, YC, which is by far and away the most established and famous incubator in Silicon Valley, uh, has had a couple of companies from uh, the Arab world, but specifically from Egypt in one of their last classes. So the issue is not about the talent. It's not about the market size. It's not about the tenacity of the young people. The challenge is, in an environment where the economy is tough, it, it just presents a lot of challenges for them to build and scale businesses at the speed and uh, tenacity, which I think ideally they would have wanted to before. What ends up happening, secondly, is, is something that really borders on a brain drain, which is young people are now looking not just to Silicon Valley or other places where they can succeed, but right in their backyard they have a model which we in America also do not understand at all, which is the UAE generally, and Dubai in particular. Dubai is just a remarkable hub. We tend to think of it as a Vegas of the desert or something, and it completely underestimates the sophistication and strategy that's being implemented there to make it a hub, north-south, east and west, for business, generally speaking, for finance, for trade, but also for technology. They have an enormous catcher's mitt on, effectively, trying to track the best of technology from around the world and from the region. And so a real network effect is happening of talent there now, where the best of the best want to be there, so the best of the best come there, so more of the best of the best come. And so some of the best Egyptians I know have actually now moved headquarters to Dubai. But more often than not, they still keep core operations back at home. So they can benefit from the fluidity of accessing multiple markets from Dubai, but take advantage of some outstanding engineering talent back in Egypt. And when you get these young people talking, they believe that they are a continuation of that Arab moment. They think that this is a new manifestation of economic voice and empowerment and building a better country. It's just that it has to be manifest with great creativity and uh, flexibility just by the nature of the circumstances you described. When I wrote my book about Muslim, Christian, and Jewish coexistence, uh, I ended with Dubai as a potent alternate model of you know, where the Arab world could go, you know, basically an irreligious or a-religious model that was much more focused on modernization and technology. And you know, Dubai has a lot of sort of backers and critics. I wonder how much of what the Dubai ruling family, what Sheikh Mohammed you know, trying to create this 
potent modern model. They are building an internet city, a hub of innovation. Is it all for show? Is it just more of a, a, a tourist-free shopping zone with some interesting experiments? I mean, I guess you you feel like there's a, a lot more there there. Maybe talk a little bit more about just that. Is it just because it's bringing people together in hubs? No, it, it, there is a lot more there there. I mean, it has obviously the uh, the wealth that you describe in the uh, facility of life in terms of infrastructure and, and technology and uh, people that make different analogies to that as they see fit. But again, I think what they what they really underestimate, and this goes from the government top down, and it's it certainly reflected uh, in the business community bottom up and in the entrepreneurs in particularly, is that there is there is a mission that they've got an ability and have decided to take leadership in this ability uh, to not be hindered by the past in any ways, but to think about what the world could look like in the next 10, 20, even 30 years and more. And that vision is certainly about the UAE, but it's absolutely clear that they're thinking that they can be a partner and model not only across the region, uh, but among emerging growth markets, generally speaking, because literally something like somewhere between a third and two thirds of the of humanity, and particularly the new generation and the new people who've not been connected technologically, who will be connected in the next five years, they're all within a six or five hour flight of Dubai. So they, they are very aware of their geographic position and they're very aware of their ability to do things not tied uh, heavily to any kind of a legacy. And it's a decision, it's a conscious decision, both in Abu Dhabi and Dubai and the other Emirates to make this happen. When you go and visit uh, the government now, you know, a third, people don't know this, a third of the ministers are women. Um, they are often in their 30s of uh, ministers, or at least the ministry now is in the hands very much of a new generation who are working 15, 16 hours a day to implement this. They realize that if they can attract the best, say, technology and innovation there because their legal infrastructure is still a work in progress, that they can not only have the benefit that happens by successful businesses being established there, but their own people and the people in the region can begin to utilize these capabilities in their own way. There's a wonderful phrase that a young man there uh, used, which is, in many respects, Dubai is pre-legal, not illegal, but pre-legal. And what they mean by that is that there are laws in the books, some of which are in the process of being reformed, which I'll come back to in a second. But there's tons of things which yet have not been established and, frankly, are not that well established even elsewhere in the world or get encumbered by legacy regulations. So, for example, Hyperloop One, I mean, in the United States, what is it? Is it, is it a train? Is it an airplane? What 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 regulatory body does it fall into? Well, when you go to a place like the UAE, you don't have to ask that question. You can start building and start experimenting and, in fact, co-author the appropriate regulations needed for safety and other things because you have this startup uh, access. So there are literally businesses now like Hyperloop One that are saying, I've got to get over to the UAE and I've got to figure out how I can get moving quicker. And at the same time, the UAE says we are welcome to do so. And by the way, we're going to learn a lot from what you're doing. We're going to be able to get other people around the region to know what you're doing. And it's a very conscious, very strategic sense. Now, the laws that are existing, sometimes they are cumbersome and bureaucracy can become cumbersome because government uh, has that element to it. But in the last year, they have been pushing forward some remarkable laws that are unlike anything, certainly in the region, but in, uh, also unlike anything in most growth markets. So, for example, they are the first country in the Middle East and in many emerging markets to have a bankruptcy law. And so they just passed it. And you think, well, that, what's the big deal about that? Well, if you start thinking about innovation and entrepreneurship, you're thinking that a lot of these uh, attempts are going to fail because that's the nature of building a startup. So what happens if you fail? In some countries, if you fail, you get put into the pokey. You go to jail. But now they're putting a real process in place by which people can work through a, a failed situation 
and come back and start again. Almost this, it may have even, I have to check this, it may have been the same week when we were cutting back on H-1B visas here in America and kind of putting up a wall against the greatest tech talent who's come, wanting to come here and build stuff. Uh, the government in Dubai uh, and UAE established a new tech visa, specifically saying if you want to come build an enterprise and bring innovation to our country, we're going to make it easier for you. And there are countless examples of things which are building up, which I think really underscore that this is well beyond just some little kind of hyped thing, um, but it is actually something that is very strategic with tactics behind it. So tell me a little bit about Lebanon and Beirut today. You know, Beirut, which for people of our generation, remember more for its unbelievably divisive, bloody, and and lethal civil war, uh, but which today, certainly relative to its neighbor Syria, and probably in some sense relative even to its northern neighbor Turkey, which is becoming a less hospitable place. You know, what's what's going on in Beirut? Is it become kind of what it was for much of its late 19th and early 20th century history of a kind of a interesting melting pot entrepot of east, west, north, south? You know, I, I think that uh, Lebanon generally, Beirut in particular, is a, it's a combination of everything that you've described. The legacy of the Civil War is still there. I mean, the fact of the matter is, in a way, it's a kind of a canton of an existence. I was quite struck. Um, I'm on the board of the American University of Beirut, which is an amazing academic institution, which is really based on, on learning above all things. And even there, you know, they'll have political campaigns for student government and other stuff where, where sectarian tensions and identifying of where you're from or where your family from uh, still plays a role that, um, uh, you know, is unfortunate, I think, net-net, because it just doesn't unleash what's happening there. But the spirit of the Lebanese and the spirit in Beirut is just so creative and artistic, and it's all about workarounds, right? It's all about just working through things. I had this wonderful experience where I watched two entrepreneurs in Beirut one night kind of debate with each other. You could tell one of them was really kind of fed up with stuff. And the other guy was sort of berating him or cheering him on a little bit. He said, you know, what's your problem? And the other guy said, well, you know, I, you know electricity goes out periodically. It just drives me crazy. And the other guy said, so what, what, what are you, the only Lebanese who doesn't have a generator? We all get generators. We work around. You're an entrepreneur. <laughs> and the guy said, yeah, but you know, it's so hard to get broadband. The, the computing... Uh, computer connectivity can be really, really problematic. Data is way too expensive. And he said, yeah, so you don't know your local hotel? I go to my lobby all the time, and that's how I do things. And so it, in a way, it was a beautiful encapsulation because there are many challenges infrastructurally and still politically being worked out, and great uncertainty because, of course, of the, the terrible things which are happening in its backyard in Syria. And yet there, there's this will and spirit of saying, but we're proud to be who we are, and we are, by the way, natural great entrepreneurs, and we're just going to work around it. And the best of the best there are some of the best I've seen anywhere in the world just for that kind of tenacity. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. 
Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What's going on in your view, particularly in in various parts of uh, of the Middle East where you've got this passionate group who want to solve basic problems, you know, what do they perceive is the gap between those energies and frankly, just more functional societies, right? So when you talk to a lot of the entrepreneurs, the, the frustration point that you hear particularly, uh, by the way, this would be pretty universal, but I'll come back to a manifestation of it in the, in the which I've observed in the Middle East. That, that often, as, as bottom-up as this phenomenon is I described to you, bottom-up meaning that, that hundreds of thousands of people have access to technology, millions of consumers have access to technology, and they're just doing stuff anyway. I mean, it's happening bottom-up regardless of what you know, top-down institutions like government and big business do. The fact of the matter is the top-down matters a lot. Rule of law matters a lot. Uh, education matters a lot. And there is this marriage in the best ecosystems where the top down and the bottom up are effectively getting going out of their way to support each other to make a phenomenon into a real ecosystem with its multiplier you know impact on the on the societies overall so i think when you talk to a lot of the entrepreneurs generally speaking they're enthusiastic by market opportunities and trends in rising middle classes and trends in uh, access to technology and frustrated why they're treated at best as a sideshow in the economy often by leadership that still thinks the world is 1980 or 1990 or whatever it is and are not sort of leaning forward, which is why, again, uh, something like the UAE and Dubai is such an interesting model, because there are tools that people can look at and say, I'm not going to repeat them. What the UAE does is unique to the UAE, but why, why am I not looking for my version of it in, say, Egypt or wherever that, that will be mine, it will be unique, it will have its own cultural ramifications, but there's a tool case here that is showing great ramifications and helping uh, raise my economy, and I think a lot of times people are, are baffled by that. Specific to the Middle East also is, is despite the hopefulness I express here, it, it, it's needless to say it's a very tough neighborhood. And I think that there are you know, a lot of young people who are, are looking at this as an opportunity, often to help problems and to bring things to bear, say, for refugee communities and that kind of a thing. But at the same time, they realize that, that with some of the challenges, particularly in the two or three really failed states right now, um, uh, that often the top-down institutions want to spend all of their time focusing on that in the short term, sometimes out of necessity, sometimes out of laziness, but are not spending enough time thinking about the medium long term, which is exactly what these young people are doing, right? These young people are building things for the near future, but they also are building a answer, a series of solutions on their terms for the medium and long term. And I think it's frustrating often when they're like, uh, they don't understand why that's not being appreciated. But again, the best entrepreneurs at the end of the day, they just they they don't day to day just they don't talk about it. They just get back to work and they keep solving what they're doing and build the best enterprise that they can. And in in the long term, I am quite hopeful about what happens bottom up. But I, I share their frustration when it seems so clear to me what could be done to support them and, and make a very new narrative expand uh, aggressively in places like the Middle East, but Latin America and everywhere. You know, for years, like one of the things that was seen as lacking. Um, was capital, right? Yeah. Ease of actually getting money to marry it to a great idea. But I wonder, is capital 
that important anymore when many of the things that many of these people are creating are are really capital light. So is that part of why you're seeing such a, you know, multiple ideas, companies, energies? There was a great quote where a, a guy said to me, the problem in the Middle East is not do we have the money. The problem is it remains in our pockets. <laughs> and, and you know, I think that is a, a good point and, and is somewhat uh, generationally and also uh, a bit uh, mindset-wise. And what I mean by that is to invest in early-stage companies generally and certainly tech-based ones, it, it, it almost necessitates a portfolio of which many of those companies won't make it. Now, if you've spent all your life and your family wealth has been created on, on traditional trade or big real estate – and you say to yourself, I could build that next you know, big hotel in my town, uh, which I could show to my friends, and it's got a clear cash flow, and then I own some real estate if there's a downturn. And then you say, take that money and deploy it in a portfolio where 50, 60, 70% of your bets may not work out at all. There, there's a resistance, I think, that historically been to that. But success, you know, uh, success breeds success. And um, what I can say is that over the last five to seven years, this is now shifting in very interesting ways. And so you have to think about investment in stages also. There is more angel early stage money for these tech investments in most of these markets than ever before. I would argue not enough, but it's been growing very rapidly, mostly by indigenous and local players. But even some Silicon Valley folks like 500 Startups has uh, uh, been investing quite aggressively in some of these early stages of companies. There is more A money than ever before, not enough, but great venture capital funds like one I, I happen to be on the investment committee of, but they are one of the great funds in the region called Wanda Capital is deploying one, two, three, four million dollars at a shot to be able to take these companies to the next level. And um, what, what is still lacking, and by the way, this is true across growth markets, and frankly, I have, even have friends of mine in Berlin who lament this, is the growth stage capital, which is very essential, which is the entrepreneurs really kind of making it, they're getting traction, they're doing well. Now they might need five million, 10 million, 15, 20 million. And the gap between the kind of mid-early stage to private equity and possible even exit is still a very wide gap. And that weighs on some of these entrepreneurs who are building companies that could become multi-hundred million dollar companies that are hiring thousands of people. That, that sort of uh, gap is still a real pressure, I think, on these ecosystems. But, but I know some larger funds that are being raised right now. And I suspect that we'll be talking much less about that in the next three to five years. And do you see any possibility, I mean, this is real speculation, of uh, the oil monarchies and the oil emirates taking some of their funds and allocating it this way? Oh, it's happening now, uh, absolutely happening right now, and people are looking into it. I mean, I think one of the challenges at the sovereign wealth fund level is you're dealing with such large money to your earlier point where these investments need, and, and particularly in a place like the growth markets generally, but the Middle East in particular, you know, you can start a company for $100,000 or $150,000 total, right? A software engineer of world-class capability can be a fraction of what it would cost if you were to do it, say, in California. And so the part of the challenge is a very understandable challenge. It's not even a, a lack of belief that this could be important. It's just that if you're used to deploying 25, 50, or more million dollars at a shot, uh, the, the needs of the ecosystem become different. So what you see some countries experimenting with, UAE is, is absolutely doing this now, even Saudi Arabia is looking at this now, um, and there have been some examples more from the private sector in Egypt and elsewhere, are saying, so if we can fund funds, which frankly, in my view, is a better way that, that top-down institutions should be thinking about this, if we can deploy that $50 million but do it in the one fund or a series of funds, you can still get the net effect that I'm, I'm describing and hopeful for. And so people are looking at it in very powerful ways. But again, money is not the issue. There is plenty of money out there. It's really just getting the ecosystem 
becoming an acceptable asset class that people want to get behind. And the other thing which is happening is generational, which is that these big family offices are now being run by a new generation who understands these things we've been talking about quite well. And of course, with some of these successes, like Souk.com and others in the last five years, you now have a new generation of entrepreneurs who are wealthy who are immediately putting their money back into early stages. So a cycle is in its early days, and it can move quite rapidly. Um, but it's just it's it's still in its early days, and, and we'll see where it goes in the next couple of years. So since you wrote your book a few years ago, tell me, I mean, if you can, uh, in addition to the ones we've we've touched on so far, what are a few of the the ideas that have really leapt out at you, and are some of those sort of more particular to those cultures, those milieus, or those challenges of? repressive states for the most part or autocratic states tunisia being you know one of the rare exceptions to that you know what's really leapt out at you as sort of a wow this is this is cool and compelling and recently one of the companies that absolutely would have been featured in my book except they were they were in the earliest barely on my radar stages at the time is a company called kareem and kareem was kareem was the first ride sharing company in the middle east before uber and it's in fact larger than Uber remaining today, and it's growing much faster. And they are hyperly, hyperly focused on the Middle East market in a broad definition, literally from Saudi Arabia, where they have a very good presence, to um, uh, Pakistan, where one of the founders is from originally. And uh, not only have they really built a kind of cultural brand about what they established with kind of pride of its localness, but they were the first shared uh, service, driving service, that, for example, took cash because there there was just a tradition of not, again, using credit card. And so they made sure they established it that way. They um, really have done everything they can to help. A lot of people in the Arab world like to order cars in advance. They were the first operation to facilitate that capability. And so they really get up in the morning, go to bed at night, not only you know building aggressively a business in an incredibly competitive environment and one that requires a great deal of capital, uh, but they're constantly getting up in the morning, going to bed at night, focusing what are the norms, not only in a broad swath of the region, but things which are distinct to Pakistan and Saudi Arabia and Egypt and everywhere else. And, and you see there something very powerful happening, the two examples of it. The pride of people who uh, drive a Kareem is, is quite amazing. I interview these drivers all the time. I get in long conversations about them wherever I go. And, and they share a lot of things that we're familiar if you talk to even Uber drivers here, which is, this is an amazing way to make supplemental uh, income. There's tremendous flexibility in your life about the way that you do it. And you really are a small businesswoman or man. You're not a just a hired gun, uh, but you literally have an opportunity to sort of build something that's really yours, and you can send that money home, or you can uh, start your path to other things that you want to do. And that's a very profound thing. And I can't, I, I wouldn't write this journalistically because I haven't reported out the number but something like 18 or 22% of Kareem drivers in Saudi Arabia are Saudis. And the reason why this is a big deal is that there's been sort of a cultural view that you, know, you don't drive if you're in Saudi Arabia, someone else drives. And yet there have been a lot of people who say, what are you talking about? This is I'm my own businessman. I can do this. There's a huge market demand for it. Um, and I'm my own businessman, so I'm more than happy to do it. And that, that just becomes something that gets a lot of other people saying, well, then I can do it or I can do something like it which I think over time could be very profound. Needless to say, still Saudi Arabia is wrestling women not driving, and so uh, things like Kareem have been a, an opening gate for mobility for incredibly talented women to be able to not only live their lives but connect with each other. And uh, no surprise that they're great female entrepreneurs all across the Middle East. 
but in places like Saudi, I believe very strongly that a company like Kareem helps facilitate that ecosystem. So if we're having this conversation in five or 10 years, what, what do you think is different? Where does this go in your sense? In, in, a, in a very hopeful scenario that we will see that not only will the UAE be massively expanding in terms of what it does in and of itself, but you'll see really amazing technology being launched from hubs like that that can be anywhere in from AI to driverless vehicles to even they're testing now um, uh, driverless flight vehicles. And I think we're going to be surprised by the innovation we'll see there. The second thing which I, I'm you know, very hopeful about is that you're going to be seeing um, them not alone in this sector. I, I am, you know, Saudi Arabia is a very complex, extremely nuanced place. There's tremendous legacy which new leadership is, is both navigating, building upon, and, and trying to think differently about. But there are conversations going on there, not unlike the conversation you and I have been having for the last 30 minutes, that if all of a sudden we see an environment where the Gulf, generally speaking, not just the UAE as an anchor, but Saudi in its own way, and um, maybe some of the other Gulf states in their own way have been embracing this phenomenon. We're talking about not only a very different Gulf, we'll be talking about knockoff effects across the Middle East, and all of a sudden we wake up and say to ourselves, we're in a world that uh, happened bottom-up and could be very, very powerful for us. We can't begin to envision what are the ramifications and the speed with which things like robotics and other stuff are happening. But again, the hopeful side of me thinks that the fact that they're happening so quickly means societies like the Middle East and other growth markets can get that much faster ahead of the game. Because again, the thing to remember is there's never a lack of talent. There's never a lack of audacity. There's never a lack of of creativity. Uh, All there is is do you have the tools to be able to to access it, to be able to catch up. And uh, I see very hopeful scenarios that, of course, there are many negative scenarios, but I see very hopeful scenarios that frustratingly to me, you very rarely hear people talk about Americans, certainly not in my backyard in Washington, D.C. And I think people should be looking at very obvious behavioral observations. There will be more technology, not less. In the next three years, 90% of these communities are going to have smart devices, not less. What can that mean? How can we support that? Uh, how can the top down and the bottom down really unleash each other? We've got a model in the UAE, but we need more. And if people begin to understand this as an opportunity and think a little bit more longer term, uh, it could be a hopeful scenario. You and I could spend another 40 minutes talking about all the things that could go wrong, and that could happen as well. But I tend to spend more of my time on on what is happening, which is different, that is leverageable and I think impactful. There's a new generation with very different premises and very different world narratives, and most of the leadership, they're still fighting the Cold War. Their mentality is the framework for which they were raised. And so, um, you know, there are lots of different things happening at the same time that make that should at least make us ask some different questions. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for your insights into something that I think, you know, most of us don't think about a lot. Or if we do, you know, if you think about the greater Middle East, you think about ISIS and you think about Iran, which is kind of part of the Middle East and not part of the Middle East, or you think about bombs in Afghanistan. I mean, people don't think about what tens of millions, particularly young people, are doing and hundreds of millions of others are doing to try to get through their lives, make their lives better, address the human concerns that that animate all of us. You know, how am I going to get what I need more easily and achieve my dreams or find a way to create a society where my dreams are achievable? All these things which are are there. They're just more muted and they're internally more muted. And hopefully you're helping support those currents without which the future is likely to just be a depressing straight line from the present. I hope so. Thank you for uh, calling attention to all this. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.